Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. Hope everyone had a good week off. I know I did. And when I say week off, of course, I mean a week work. But we're here. We're ready to dive in. So let's get things started with Budget Spotlight, which is brought to you by our sponsorship from PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest collections of magic content on the web. You are doing yourself a disservice if there is anything you are looking for content-wise and you are not checking there first because I got something for everybody. It is also made possible due to their sponsor at MTGO Traders, who are my favorite people to deal with when it comes to getting cards on Magic Online. Budget Spotlight is normally a segment where I'm spotlighting an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander slanted card. But this episode's going to be a little bit different because of the nature of what this episode's about. So this week we're doing all rares. And we're going to kick things off with Loyal Warhound. Loyal Warhound is 1 in a white for a 3-1. And when it enters the battlefield, if if an opponent controls less lands than you, you search your library for basic planes, put it onto the battlefield, tapped, and shuffle. Now, Knight of the White Orchid was and is a staple in white decks seeking an advantage in mana going all the way back to its time in standard where it enabled several powerful builds that allowed you to jump you know you would be able to jump from two mana for knight of the white orchid all the way up to four mana for rafika the many on turn three or jump from two to four in order to cast jace the mind sculptor or jump from two to four in order to cast whatever Right, It doesn't really matter what you were jumping up from 2 to 4 to cast. The fact is, you're doing this with a white creature, which is really powerful. And this one is more splashable than Knight of the White Orchid was, uh, being a single white mana instead of double white. It trades up better in combat, because it's a 3-1 instead of a 2-2 first strike. So while you will 
of course, trade with any X2s you come across. You will also trade up with any X3s you come across, which is really helpful, you know. In a format in standard right now with Briar Ridge Tracker, and, you know, we just got out of one with Bone Crusher Giant. We, I mean, there's, there's a list that we can go through where creatures with three toughness, it was, it was really relevant that this thing is able to either attack into those with impunity because if your opponent blocks, they're losing a valuable resource, or there's the fact that it blocks with impunity because it's trading up in card quality pretty regularly. So all the way around makes it relevant. And dog is not an irrelevant creature type either. I know we don't have the stuff in standard anymore. It just rotated. But we do have dog creature type support. Not for nothing. So uh, all totaled, that puts this card's price tag at $2 a copy on CoolStuffInc.com. And looks like 24 cents or 0.24 tickets on MTGO traders. So just really not a bad price for such a good effect. Moving on, we have one that I put on this list in part just so I could say it on the record. And that is Asmora Nomartica Dyston Akoldakar. And I'm not going to say that again. Uh, Asmora is unique, shall we say. A uh, 3-3 human wizard, and I did not mention a mana cost because there's not one. Legendary creature. As long as you've discarded a card this turn, you may pay either a red or a black to cast the spell. And when Asmora, Nomartica, Dyson, and Akoldakar enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a card named the Underworld Cookbook, reveal it, put it into your hand, and then shuffle. And then you can sacrifice two food tokens. Target creature deals six damage to itself. Now it's worth noting that, I mean, this card is, my first piece in the notes said this is a $2 card with a $4 name. This card is a bonkers. The Underworld Cookbook, for reference, what you're searching for with this creature is a, a one mana artifact. Tap, discard a card, create a food token, pay four, sacrifice the Underworld Cookbook, return target creature from your graveyard to your hand. So, not a bad piece of technology, if you will. Uh, price value is at $2 on CoolStuffInc.com and one ticket on MTGO Traders. Who knew food could be on the Modern or Commander menu? Because that's what this enables. You can discard cards in order to generate food tokens, and then your food tokens can be sacrificed to anything that needs food tokens. Whether it's Asmora, Nomartica, Dyson, Akoldakar herself, or cards like Savvy Hunter, which are strictly worse, sacrificing two foods to draw one card. Uh, Wicked Wolf, sacrificing a food to become indestructible. Regardless of what you're playing this thing in, it provides access to a way to make food tokens. It gives you artifact synergy because you go get an artifact and the tokens that you make with the Underworld Cookbook are themselves more artifacts. And 
It also enables Vengevine because it's a creature spell that is perilously easy to cast. A really good example is when you cast something like, I mean, this is going to be kind of a, oops, I, you know, oops, this is technically incorrect, but uh, Faithless Looting, something like a Faithless Looting. So that you can get the Vengevine into the graveyard. Or a really good example, a, a, a better example right now that is legal and modern would be casting a creature who has an additional cost to cast of discard a card. Or when this creature enters the battlefield, discard a card. And you do that, discard Vengevine, and then cast as more on a Mardukka Dice and a Kuldakar as your second creature spell, which in turn revives your Vengevines. So, all the way around, just not a bad pickup. I mean, again, $2 card, really powerful applications. Honestly, the likes of which we really don't know yet, because Modern is kind of in an interesting place at the moment. Moving on to our next one, we have Nevin Riles Disc. Now, this is one I, I'm going to have to pull up for, for full disclosure. I am currently recording this at home because we had a very, very, very hectic weekend. And we got a little behind on a lot of the other thing. A lot of the other things we normally want to do. So, Nevin Rowell's disc, four mana, artifact, enters the battlefield tapped, and one and tap to destroy all artifacts, creatures, and enchantments. Notably, this leaves lands and planeswalkers, but I digress. Price point on Nevin Rowell's disc is 50 cents in paper, or a penny on Magic Online. This is a commander staple. It's recursive through artifact support cards. And it has one of the best stories for how it got its name ever, given the fact that the name, Nevenerol's Disc, is Larry Niven, one of the designer, his name backwards. <laughs> Worth pointing that out. Uh, it just it's it's got a great pedigree, a lot of utility, and the price could not be better for what you get for it. You know, it's a fifty cent board wipe in Commander. It's a fifty cent board wipe in Modern if you try hard enough. Whether you're playing it with something like Amulet of Vigor or just doing it the old fashioned way. Just really, really valuable piece to have in the toolbox. For 50 cents, you can do a lot worse. And last but not least, we have our sta another standard entrant into the competition, as it were. Burn Down the House, which is three and double red sorcery. Either you, you choose one. It's modular, so you know I'm here for it already. 
5 damage to each creature and planeswalker. Or create 4 1 1 red devils that when they die deal 1 damage to any target. So this may actually be the best sweeper in standard right now. Like, I know we're in a standard format that has access to cards like uh, Shadow's Verdict, Crippling Fear, uh, Draconic Intervention. Um, I know there's more. Blood on the Snow. I mean, Doomscar. Uh, the Mastery, the White Mastery, whose name I can't remember, but got played against me today. I think this might be the best one. Like, most of the creatures you need to hit are going to get hit by it on turn 5. Including S the, the tokens from Eskis Chariot and a token from Renin 7 if they cast it on curve or if they cast it ahead of curve and you're on the play. They cast Renin 7, made a token, crew the, crew the chariot, hit you for four, made another token, and you just untap and clap them all for five mana. That's really strong. Uh, the fact that it also claps Planeswalkers is a big part of the allure here because incidentally getting the Renin 7 alongside the tokens, incidentally getting uh, Loth, alongside the tokens, incidentally cleaning up Professor Onyx, along with, you know, an Emrith. The fact that it kills an Emrith without having to get around Ward, you know, clearing out token swarms. And then there's the fact that, unlike the other sweepers, this even has utility on empty boards. So even if you're in a situation where, you know, you're, you're a little ahead or the boards are even, and you just top deck this, you're like, well, let's see if they got a, let's see if they got a counterspell. Because if they don't, these little, these little things will kill them in four turns. Let's make these devils. <laughs> let's make them. Let's get in there. And not for nothing, one of the best decks in standard, as of current, is, you know, Blue Red Epiphany, and being able to play a version of Blue-Red Epiphany that does not open itself up to opposing creature removal at all seems like an interesting proposition, especially when you're able to do it with, you know, Crush the Weak and Cinderclasm to clean up small bodies, and then you can scale up to this to clean up the big ones. Well, you know, it kills basically everything you need to kill in the standard format for five mana, giving me huge Hour of Devastation vibes when it was first released, except it's in an even better place. So I, I just, I really like Burnt Down the House, and especially at its price point for 50 cents or six cents on Magic Online. 50 cents in, in paper, six cents on Magic Online. That's ridiculous. Right. So that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. Let's move into our second segment, Brew of the Week, which is brought to you by our affiliate program through Grey Viking Games. Brew of the Week is where I'm spotlighting a deck that I feel like doesn't get the press that it deserves, whether it's 
because it's really cheap or because it just looks really good for the value that you're investing. This week's brew is Modern Hardened Scales. Your core concept is to dominate the battlefield with your group of powerful and synergistic threats before using Arcbound Ravager to push for lethal. Hardened Scales makes your stupid idiot creatures way more efficient, while Ancient Stirrings becomes the best cantrip ever, period, in this deck. So, for those who don't know how this deck functions and how, like, what these creatures are that you're doing this with, Hardened Scales says whenever a creature enters under your control, it's uh, whenever a plus one plus one counter would be placed upon a creature you control. That many counters plus one are placed on that creature instead. And that also applies to creatures entering the battlefield with plus one plus one counters. So it means you spend two mana on a on a two-two walking blister or two mana on a two-two hangerback walker. Which is really valuable. Either you get a two-two, and if your opponent has a removal spell, you get to ping them for two on the way out or clean up a couple of small creatures. Or you get two counters on Hangerback Walker, and when it dies, it just gets replaced by two Thopter tokens. It also works well with uh, modular abilities, so that when your creatures die and move counters around, you get extra counters, and then you get to do it again when they die again. In addition, uh, Zabaz the Glimmer Wasp says whenever a modular ability would put a plus one plus one counter on a creature you control, put another one on there. So, Hardened Scales plus Zabaz plus Arcbound Worker plus Ravager is just an unfortunate amount of damage. Out of nowhere. To say nothing of the upside of, like, putting a bajillion counters on Ravager through Hangerback Walker. Like, you just, you just do some nonsense here. You do, you know... You sacrifice a hangerback walker that's got two counters on it, make two Thopter tokens, put two counters on Ravager, sacrifice the two Thopters, put four more counters on Ravager, and then sacrifice Ravager and put all its counters on the unblocked Ink Moth Nexus that's coming in. Like, it's just ridiculous. From a customization standpoint, splashing has been common in the past, but I honestly don't even know if it's necessary now. I really like the idea of staying mono green and then having access to other colors to facilitate the activation costs on Zabaz and uh, sideboard cards <sighs> and your Urza Saga package, which itself can be tweaked to suit individual tastes and metagames with access to cards like Engineered Explosives, Chalice of the Void, and, you know, sort of your usual suspects of Relic of Progenitus or Soul Guide Lantern or uh, Pithing Needle or whatever. You know, you need to shut something down. Arza Saga can find you a way to do it. From a strengths and weaknesses standpoint, you prey on the fact that most of, a lot of your opponents in Modern are just trying not to care about you. You force them to kill you under pressure and often with a often playing through at least one key piece of disruption. Whether it's through Saga getting it or through just natural drawing it. You know, 
uh, pithing needle on Urza or or I guess a pithing needle on Thopter Foundry or a Relic of Progenitus against Dredge or whatever, right? Like you just, this thing's on the table, you got to deal with it. And oh, by the way, your face is getting smashed in. Uh, on balance, your disruption package is less, less effective, also less offensive, against more interactive opponents because you're going to struggle to amass enough pressure because they're actually killing your creatures. They, they, don't, they, they actually care about what you're doing, and when they do, it is harder to justify when your opponent can trade one for one and even several times over two for one in a game in the face of something like Kolagon's Command, Prismari Command. Uh, the list can go on here. Ancient Grudge, whatever, after sideboarding. So, you know, you're going to beat people who try to ignore you, but you're going to struggle against people who don't. From an outlook perspective, this archetype seems to have largely supplanted Affinity as the sort of default artifact aggro deck in Modern. Its outlook is eerily similar to the one that we used to have for Affinity. If it's not respected in sideboards, it's going to make a whole bunch of people look silly. You never leave home without your artifact hate. I don't care how long it's been since you've seen Affinity in your local metagame, how many times that one person has made you mad because you just don't have enough sideboard space for them. Play your way through that matchup. Don't get clowned by this deck. All right? All right. So that's going to wrap up Brew of the Week. Let's move into our main topic but before we do, let's you know remind everybody that Brew of the Week is made possible by the affiliate program from Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games uh, is a godsend for people like me on Arena. Getting access to pre-release packs, getting access to promo packs, getting access to the regular booster pack codes without having to go to events and buy packs out of pocket. $7 for a pre-release pack is a whole lot better than 30 So for that alone, they are worth the effort to create a profile for. And the service is fast, friendly, I mean, just borderline instantaneous. So uh, if you want to check them out, use the affiliate link down in the description below on YouTube and Constructive Criticism and Pure MTGO. If you're hearing this on a podcast platform, I've got the affiliate link pinned in the Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders, and I will get it pinned in my Twitter bio and will be working on getting a either a link tree or a beacons put together for TikTok. So with that out of the way. Let's move into our main topic. Our main topic is made possible by contributions from Patreon. This show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, you can head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg, become a patron, show your support, take advantage of your rewards. We've talked about commons. We've talked about uncommons. Let's talk about rares. If you really, really want to define what a format is, what a format does, look at the rares. I mean, 
Pauper is defined by the absence of rares. Every other format is defined by what rares are in it. No rarity carries more of the load when it comes to identifying format characteristics. I don't care how big, dumb, and splashy the mythics are. These cards tend to demonstrate where a format's power level resides and what a format's about based on what roles they play in decks. To give you an idea, we're going to work through those roles. Role number one, efficient threats. Let's look at standard right now. Old Growth Troll, Loyal Warhound, Relic Robber, Eskis Chariot. I mean, these are good, efficient creatures. Luminarch Aspirant, uh, Righteous Valkyrie. To an extent. Uh, just, I mean, these are creatures that give you power and toughness for mana. They give you exactly what you need. They are the juice. They are what you're in for, right? They establish the format speed as well as what kind of interaction is necessary. A really good example is looking at the Gruel Werewolves deck, which is mostly, like, it's, it's some good common and uncommons to fill out the curves. But your best cards are all rare. And if you don't have the right removal, if you're stuck playing a bunch of play with fires and shocks, you're going to have a bad time. But if you're playing a bunch of removal that actually kills their stuff, it's just a completely different experience. Role number two is your advantage generators. Some examples from your past include Dreadhorde Arcanist, Glitzleaf Siphoner, Dark Confidant, Runaway Steamkin, Experimental Frenzy, Memory Deluge, Tireless Tracker, Lotus Cobra. These dictate the ways you can pull ahead of your opponents, whether by doing it with cards, mana, both. You know, it's how you can get ahead. Standard right now has got quite a few of those. I mean, I guess a few. Anyway, Tovalar is really good. Uh, Suspicious Stowaway is a really good example. They're creatures that allow you to pull ahead of your opponent. Lotus Cobra is still in standard to get you ahead on mana. I mean, what more do you want? These dictate far and away. Like, there's a lot that these cards do to just kind of patch decks together that really otherwise probably wouldn't have ways to do it. Roll number three are your mechanic signpost cards because, you know, at the end of the day, each standard format is defined as much by what your cards do in the text box as they are by like what roles they're playing in your deck, right? Like what did, what style of play, what are, what are the sets about? The rares tend to give you a really clear picture. Cards like confiscation coup are a good example of a mechanic signpost that you, you get for energy. You can turn that into steal this creature. Just give me that thing. You have extra energy laying around, oh, you can take a bigger thing. 
That's a nice that's a nice scarab god you have there. It's mine now. Iron Crag Pyromancer. If we're looking for a good reason to play the draw two deck, getting a free lightning bolt out of every second draw, that's pretty strong. Arcbound Ravager. I mean, that, that thing needs no introduction, right? Play a bunch of artifacts, break your opponent's face. That Arcbound Ravager. Thieves Guild Enforcer. We're we're all happy to have seen that card rotate from standard, right? Mechanic signpost. Here's this one drop that is equal parts mill engine and sort of Delver clone. Yeah, that's a that's a mechanic signpost. Sedgemore Witch for Magecraft. Make tokens. Go wide. Leon and Light Scribe for Magecraft. You went wide? Well, everybody's bigger now. These are your build-around-me cards dictating the overall power level of the mechanics in the format. Which is to say, you know, this is, this is where mistakes tend to be made. A really good example of a mistake being made at Mythic is something like Oko, but a mistake being made at Rare is something like... I don't know. Thieves Guild Enforcer. Something like... To fairy time raveler, something like oh, trying to think, trying to think. I guess gotta go, gotta go way back. Something like Glorybringer was an interesting mechanic signpost because it was just like I guess that's a, a different thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But these, your mechanic signpost cards and the last card, the last role we're going to talk about in a little bit, tend to play the biggest role in determining sort of what the overall identity of the format is. Like what decks do, what decks are good, what decks are playable, what decks aren't. Are the mechanic signposts, and we'll get to the other one in a minute. Role number four are your bombs. And this part's pretty self-explanatory. These cards are just powerful on their own. You usually don't have to make you know, really small, if any, deck-building sacrifices. There's not, like, a whole lot on your plate to figure out what these... Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at Glorybringer and figure out that thing's going to be good. To look at Essica's Chariot and say, wow, that's really strong. Uh, we should probably play that. To look at Knight of the Reliquary and be like, oh, yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, they're just cards that are better on rate or do just an, uh, an obviously powerful thing. And they, they really don't need a lot of explanation. I, that, that's, that's really all there is to it. It's just like Bombs Unlimited. Sometimes a card's just really, really, really good. And there's really not much else to say. Another another thing that kind of... I guess I missed one when I was actually writing these notes out, now that I think about it. Sort of a roll four and a half or a roll five A, if you will. But just your, rate, your really, really good rate cards. And this is where a lot of your rare removal spells, your rare disruption cards are going to fall. The likes of Disallow, 
uh, Elite Spellbinder, Thoughtseize. These tell you the, the smallest amount of mana you can pay to get that effect, or the biggest body that you can put on that effect for that mana call. Like, it's just, it's the apex of what that effect does in your format. Sometimes they, they skew mana curves lower in the case of formats that feature Thoughtseize or uh, cards like Fateful Absence that just invalidate expensive creatures. Or sometimes they can allow you to push curves up because, like, when Vraska's Contempt was the best spot removal spell in Standard, it meant you didn't have to worry about spending too much mana on a creature. You, you could get away with it. <laughs> but last but not but last and absolutely positively not least is roll number five mana fixing this is the most important roll as none of the rest of this matters if you can't cast your spells like if you can't cast your spells it doesn't matter how many efficient threats you have, how many advantage generators, how many signposts, how many bombs, how many really good efficient rate cards. None of it matters if you can't play your cards. More than anything else, these dictate format identity as they determine just how greedy we can be with color requirements, splashes, and sideboard packages. A really good example is... Formats with fetch lands or shock lands versus formats with triomes or formats like we're in right now where you we've got a bunch of dual lands, but 10 of them aren't true dual lands. You just get to pick one color or the other. It's not quite the same. You know, you pick that color and you're locked into it unless you get a way to bounce it or sacrifice it and bring it back. And... That, that, more than anything else, dictates what we're able to do in a format in Magic the Gathering. You know, Legacy is defined by the fact that it has the original dual lands. Modern is defined by fetch land into shock land, painful mana bases. And it, you know, some decks are viable strictly because of that fact. Uh, Pioneer is Shockland, Checkland mana bases, but we've also got access to Triomes. And then, you know, Pauper is defined by its bad mana. Now, the Artifact Duels went a long way to help with that. Uh, the Kaldheim Snow Duels have opened up some possibilities that maybe to me feel underexplored, but mana fixing in any format is the most important feature of that format, and outside of specifically Pauper, most of the best ones happen at Rare. You know, it was a pretty noticeable drop-off when the Shocklands left Standard and we were left with Pathways and Snarls. We didn't actually get anything in... You know, we, we were left with Pathways, Snarls, and the Innistrad Lands, which are like the anti-fast lands, they're slow lands, they're last lands, which, by the way, is one of my favorite nicknames ever. So for a few guidelines when we're talking about looking at rares, evaluating them, while decks stuffed full of rares are rarely terrible, 
without a coherent plan, they're not great either. You know, we've we've seen examples in the past where you just stuff a whole bunch of good magic cards in a deck and it feels pretty strong. But rare wild cards are your most precious resource on Magic Arena. When it comes to get, deciding what you're going to spend rare wild cards on, it's best to start with something that sees play in a lot of places. But failing that, you get an engine that doesn't require many rares. A really good example is the Mono Black deck we talked about last week. Uh, the ability to get into an archetype that, you know, either doesn't use a lot of rares to start with, so you can kind of build out of it as you go, or to start with something that your cards are valuable in all a whole bunch of decks, a la Chariot, Ren7, Dual Lands. You know, that's a good place to start. Uh, buying standard set rares that have eternal implication makes good financial sense, and I spelled sense with a C, because I'm hilarious. <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is a card like a Fateful Absence. Let's keep, we, we keep coming back to that one, but it's really, really good. Just destroy a creature. Just get it out of here. Uh, investigate, but just get it out of here. That's a card that's got some eternal implications because it's a white spot removal spell. Even if not in Modern or Pioneer, it's really, really good in Commander, where frequently you don't have access to that kind of effect in white. You know, you have to play stuff like Path to Exile, you have to play Swords to Plowshares, and now you get this that's just another really, really good spot removal spell, and you can play it differently depending on what kind of game you're in. On balance, buying quote-unquote standard staple rares that don't have eternal implications. Let's, let's try not to do that. But in general, a working knowledge of the heavily played rares in your format grants a sizable edge in deck construction and gameplay. And that feels like the coldest take ever, but you'd be surprised. It is, it is a major part of what we do in this game. Uh, just knowing what the other person is up to. Having a clear picture and adjusting what you're doing according to it. Not just in-game, but just in deck building in general is a really, really, really smart, savvy place to be. And it's also good from the MTG Finance perspective because you can not only know where they are, but know where they're going. Which gives you a leg up on the competition if you know where they are and can guess where they're going, you can get in before the other people do. So that's going to wrap up this episode, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, you've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns. Send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. Join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, went blank. If you're a patron of the show, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord. Where, as of right this moment, my wonderful partner has actually taken up some practice in streaming their games. Uh, we're still learning when it comes to the competitive side of the game. 
but it's been fun. Uh, for those who have who don't follow me on, if you want to get to know the the guy behind the mic here, uh, you can follow me on TikTok at Homeward Path Gaming. That's also my YouTube channel. If you're not doing this there uh, on YouTube, I will periodically, once I actually start recording them again, uh, put up gameplay videos for games like Madden Twenty One. Uh, Gundam Battle Operation 2, I've just downloaded and installed Splitgate, we're going to see how that goes, I've not given it much of a chance yet, and eventually we'll get back to playing, uh, on PC I've got Halo Master Chief Collection, and one of these days I've got to do a playthrough and review on the Knights of the Old Republic games, but because I have them and just haven't played them. But, for those of you who don't follow me currently on TikTok and did not get to hear about this, my partner and I are in the process of a race to Mythic. We both started in bronze. Of course, Amaris is playing against other starter decks, has a leg up in the competition, and I'm not bitter about that at all. Because the goal of this is for both of us to come out the other side of it better magic players. And by can, you know getting after each other to play more magic, we get to be better magic players. So we will be posting, I will be posting some at least a weekly update about that on TikTok. And then we'll probably share that sim a similar update on here as we go. And y'all better believe at the end of this, whoever gets Mythic first is writing the episode that we're going to do together about this. So, uh, again, that's all we've got for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. All the social media information has been given out, so I leave you with parting words. We, we know everybody's going through stuff right now. So, when dealing with other people, please always lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, pick good rares, but be kind. And we'll catch you next week, everybody. Be safe.